0: Several years ago, when the iPad first came out, it was one of those little techie toys that I thought I had to have. And when I got it in the mail after ordering it and waiting for days for it to arrive, it finally came in the mail. You know how it is, those of you who own Apple products. How many of you own Apple products here? You know how it is when you get those products, you open them up, And it's like, it's not quite the Shekinah glory, I get that, but it's it's, it's an awesome thing to open up a new Apple product. So I go to open up this box that had a brand new iPad in it, brand new Apple product, new piece of technology, and inside the box was nothing more than a bunch of blank 3x5 cards. I got ripped off and I ordered it on Amazon thinking I was going to save money, and I opened it up, and it wasn't the product that I thought I had ordered. It was interesting when I think about that, because on the outside, it said Apple iPad. On the inside, what was on the inside? Nothing more than a bunch of blank 3x5 cards. I bring that up to transition that into this passage here. Jesus here is going to give an illustration of if you're truly connected to the vine, this is the fruit that's going to grow out of your life. In other words, let me ask you this. If someone were to look inside of your heart today, if we open up the box of our hearts, what would they see? What would be evident? What would be the fruit that's growing there? So you ask yourself this question. Last week we looked at the whole metaphor of, of, the, of the vine, the true vine, that's Jesus. You look at the branches, that's us. We grow out of that vine. And here's the fruit that should grow from that. So what is the fruit we should expect from those who are truly in Christ? Let's think about this. And today's passage will tell you and teach you what it looks like. What does a fruitful Christian look like? What is that fruit we should look for in their lives? And Jesus will define that for us. If you're truly a follower of Jesus, we look into the box of our hearts. This is the fruit that should be growing. Remember, we've gone over this like every week. You should be a PhD in this by now. Why is John in your Bible? Why is the gospel of John in your Bible? It's so you will believe. Let's say that together. So you will believe. These things are written so that you may what? Believe. Okay, so if you truly believe in Christ, what kind of fruit should you expect in your life? What kind of fruit should I expect in my life? What should be growing out of that stem, that tree, that fruit that we're connected true Jesus, as a true vine, tells us here, these are the fruits that are, should, should be inevitably clear in your life. When his word truly dwells in you, and his, his word takes residence in our hearts, here's what we should see. Here's what should be obvious to all. And here's the central truth that's going to be very easy on this Father's Day to remember, to memorize, and to understand really what this passage is all about. It's this. If Christ is truly on the inside... Then fruit is going to be growing on the outside. If Christ is truly on the inside, then fruit is going to be growing on the outside. All of us here are growing some kind of fruit, but it's not necessarily all godly fruit. What kind of fruit is growing in your life? If we say we're connected to the true vine who is Christ and we're one of his branches, what kind of fruit is God producing in our lives? One thing I want you to take note of today when you look at this passage is the fact that there is no such thing as a fruitless Christian. Do you understand that? There's no such thing as a fruitless Christian. Just as there's no such thing as a human being who doesn't breathe oxygen, we we have to have that to live. There's no such thing as a fruitless Christian. And so, what Jesus will do now is he'll explain the metaphor that we looked at last week He's the true vine. We are the branches. Those are the fruitless branches over there that they're the false professors of faith. And if we're truly in Him, we're going to be fruitful. So, what fruit should we look for? There's a number of passages that talk about this, but this one in particular is really helpful. We're going to examine four different things that Jesus highlights here in this passage to His followers the night before He would die, His parting message has nothing to do with self-centeredness. It has everything to do with how he wants his followers to live. Here's what we should expect in one another's lives if we truly know the Savior. First one is this. If we're truly in him and his fruit is really growing in our lives, you will lovingly obey. There's going to be an obedience there that is joyful and it's loving And it's going to be at the desire of our heart. Look again at verse 9. Jesus said this, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus makes an important point here. And you don't want to miss this. When the word of God abides in you, in such a way that it takes deep residence in your hearts, you're going to respond with obedience, but it's not just any kind of obedience. It's an obedience that is done out of love. The same perfect love that the Father has for the Son, and the same perfect love now the Son has for us. And now in response to that perfect love, We love God in return. That's not perfect. My love for Jesus is not perfect. And your love for the Lord is not perfect either. But it should be there. And when we love him and when we obey him, it ought to be out of a heart that is joyful and delightful and, and has as its greatest pleasure to please our Heavenly Father. And the point Jesus here is making, if you look at verse 10, is that the way we enjoy his love, This amazing love that God has given to us is when we obey him out of a heart of love. And that's how God wants us as his children to obey him. With a heart of love, with a heart of delight, with a desire in our hearts that really sincerely wants to glorify him. So ask this, how did Jesus obey his father? Well, he did that with a heart of love. And you find in John chapter 8, verse 29, when Jesus made a claim, I cannot make and you cannot make, I always do the things that what? Please my Father. And in our own lives, and I want you to think of your life today in two different spheres, two different arenas. You have your public life and you have your private life. In your public life, God wants us to be obedient. And I would argue this. It's easier to be obedient publicly than it is to be obedient privately. How many of you would agree with that? It's easier to be obedient publicly when you're in church, you're with people, eyeballs are on you, people see you, and, and you know, we're wondering what is what is everyone thinking about me? I want to come across as a good Christian, as a as an obedient person. So in private, that that's kind of that kind of takes care of itself. People see us and and To some extent, we all care about people's opinions, probably too much if we were honest. But in the private sector of life, that's where obedience is really put to the test. Do I love him? Do I love him enough to obey him when nobody is watching? Do we love him enough to delight in him when no one's around and no one can praise us and no one can say, Wow, you're a great Christian? And wow, look what I see you doing. So it's our own personal public obedience and private obedience to Jesus that's the fruit of being loved by the Savior. So when his word, when this, when this word begins to do its work in our hearts and, and it does, it goes so deep into your hearts that it takes residence in your hearts and it starts to change you, And many of you know what this is. The word of God starts to change you. It starts to grow you. Obedience becomes different. And I would argue that obedience goes from something we have to do to something we get to do. From a drudgery to a delight. From something that's a burden to something that is a great joy. Now, it should be for us, if we truly love the Savior, a great delight and an honor and a joy and a privilege in the greatest love of our life to obey our Heavenly Father. And I trust that's a joy in your life. Let me bring something back to, I was 19 years old. And I was 19 years old, I think this illustrates this well, for the first time in my life, I had learned to drive a fork truck. How many of you know how to drive a forklift, a fork truck, several of you know how to do that? How many of you realize when you drive a forklift, it steers differently than a car? How many of you know that? So here I was, brand new job at a steel plant right south of Chicago. And I was working with the roughest of the roughest kind of guys. And, and these guys were rough around the edges. And one guy, he was trained to teach me how to drive a forklift. So he goes, Come up here, kid. Come up here, kid. Never call me Mike, never call me Hess, any never call me Pastor Mike. He called me kid. Come up here, kid. And he. Brought me up on the forklift and he said, now don't expect me to drive this because this is your job. I'm going to teach you how to drive this. Now the first thing I'm going to tell you is this. Listen to everything I say. because If you don't listen to everything I say, you're going to be sorry. You're going to be really sorry. So listen to me, kid. And here he is. Every other word, he's just oozing expletives left and right. I had a hard time following him. So then it was my turn to drive the forklift. It was a snowy day. I would shovel these... Uh, this this excess steel from the lathes into these dumpsters and the swarf from grinders into these dumpsters. And I had to drive it outside and dump it into these huge dumpsters. And it was snowing out. I didn't listen like I should have. And I steered that forklift and I bumped into a bunch of things. I caused a big mess. I didn't drive it right. I got it caught and stuck out in the snow, and here's, there was about 20 or 30 guys in the plant. They all came out, you know what they did? It was such an edifying experience. <laughs> they laughed at me, and then they started throwing snowballs at me. It was such a great day. What a wonderful, humbling experience. Thankfully, today, you cannot live that out right now, since it's not cold outside. But here's, here's what I want you to understand. I'll never forget the words that he said. You'll be sorry if you don't listen to me. You're going to be sorry if you don't listen to me. Friends, can I submit this to you today? You are always going to be sorry if you do not obey the commands of God. I'm not saying you're always going to be comfortable if you obey God. But I'm going to tell you this. You will always be sorry if you do not obey the commands of God. You may say right now, it doesn't bother me at all. Trust me, friend, keep living that way. Down the road, you will always be sorry if you do not obey the commands of God. See, the commands God gives to us, he gives because he loves us. Are you convinced of that today? So God tells me to avoid foolish living, impure living, unholy unholy living. God tells me to avoid lacking self-control. He tells me to be a forgiving person. You know why he tells me that? You know why he tells you that? Because he loves you. And God, in his infinite wisdom, knows what is best for our lives infinitely better than we do. And he tells us this because he loves you. And be encouraged by this. The one who gives you these commands, God who gives you these commands, sent his son who is the perfect pattern of everything we should be. Everything God wants us to be, Christ is the perfect pattern pattern and no matter how you scrutinize his life no matter how intensely you look at how he lived what you're going to come away with is jesus christ is the perfect man he is god and as you look at him and you examine him you understand everything god commands me to do god empowers me to do how because you and i as followers of christ we're connected to the true vine We're connected to him. Like I said last week, without the power of Christ, you're powerless to live for Christ. That's why Jesus says in verse five, without me, you can do what? Nothing. So I would say this, if you're connected to the true vine, the the fruit that's gonna grow in your life, the first branch is gonna be this, you're going to lovingly obey. There's gonna be a delight to obey our Savior. We're going to love to do that. Second thing is this, is you'll know his joy. Here's the second branch that grows from this. Look at verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that my joy, and that your joy rather, may be full. So, so far in the upper room, Jesus has spoken about a lot of different things. He's spoken about his love and how now we can love one another. He has spoken about his peace that he gives to us in a very troubled world. He's also spoken about the fact that the followers of Christ will not be left without him. They'll have his presence. He'll be there with them. You'll never be left alone. And then he talked about the fact that you're going to have the power that's necessary. To do what God commands you to do. And now he promises this, his joy. He promised his joy. What was the basis of Jesus' joy? Notice how the flow of the text goes here. You talk about love, and you talk about obedience, and then he talks about joy. Why was Jesus such a joyful person? He didn't have joyful circumstances. He had difficult people in his life. Jesus was hated. Jesus was betrayed. People said bad things about Jesus, but yet he was still joyful because Jesus tied his obedience with his joy. Remember Hebrews 12 verse 2, who for the joy set before him, he's about to go to Disney World. What does the verse say? He endured what? The cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the Father. What must be our basis of joy? It's right here in the text. It's by abiding in Christ, remaining in Christ, remaining in his word, lovingly obeying him. Here's what you find from the text. You might find today joy is very elusive in your life. And you might have to confess, as as we all do from time to time, at this very moment, I'm not a very joyful person. There's not a lot of joy here. So maybe that's where you are today. I want you to pay very careful attention to this verse because I think you can memorize it by the end of the service today. Notice two things about it. Joy comes from a relationship with Christ alone. Do You see his words here? Look at verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that who... My joy, Jesus says. That my joy may be in you. He doesn't tie joy to other people. He doesn't tie it to your circumstances. He doesn't tie it to a different location. He doesn't tie it to better health. He doesn't tie it to any of those things. Who does Jesus tie joy to? Help me here, church. To himself. He ties it to Christ. So it doesn't have to do with finances the way we look, or the opinions of others, it has to do with him, our relationship with him. Let me point out a second thing in this verse. Joy is also for the obedience. Uh, if you look here at verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will ab- abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love, it's no accident, verse 11 is exactly where it is. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be. Be full. What I'm seeing here is that joy is for the obedient. It's for those who lovingly obey the Savior, and that teaches me this. Which means if I'm disobedient to the Lord, if I'm not following Him, I'm not loving Him. Now, if I'm going my own way, saying I'm going to live my own life, here's what I should expect. I should not expect to be a joyful person, and you should not expect to be a joyful person. If you're not living for him, especially, friend, if you are truly redeemed, if the spirit of God truly lives inside of you, you should expect no joy outside of doing what God explicitly, specifically commands in his word. So I'd ask you today, are you looking for joy? I've never counseled anybody who has come to me and said, pastor, can you give me about 10 points, several ideas on how to be a joyless person? But I have counseled many who have said, "I am I'm down and I'm not joyful." And here's what's happened in life, and there's been some difficult things that God has ordained in their lives, and they would say, "I'm not very joyful right now." Friend, are you looking for joy? Look to Christ. Look to His word. Look to the Savior. In him we have complete joy. So if you're joyless today and and you're saying sincerely, I I just don't have any joy in my life. Friends, it's easy to examine everyone else around us who are imperfect and flawed and, and don't meet our expectations. That's very easy to do. But God doesn't tell you to look to them. God tells you to look to the Savior. Look to Christ. He is our source of joy. He has promised for all of his children That means you, it means me, it means all of us. Full, complete joy for each of us. Something we can never get in the world. So right now, I'll make a definitive statement based on this text. Right now, you can have joy. And nobody in the church agrees with me, but it's still right. You can have joy. (laughs) Right now, we can have joy. And guess what? The circumstances around us don't have to get better. And the people around us don't have to get better. Joy is evidence. It's a fruit, as you read in Galatians 5, 22 through 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, meekness, self-control. These are things that just grow out of a heart that truly knows Christ as Savior. So we can have joy, and joy is evidence of a relationship with Christ. Just as this wedding ring is evidence, I'm a married man. And losing hair means it's evidence, I'm an aging man, okay? But joy is evidence that you are a redeemed individual who truly has been raised to walk in newness of life, whose name is written in heaven, and God has given you forgiveness of sins and grace and mercy and adoption. And forgiveness in Christ, and you know Him. That does not mean that Christians don't get discouraged or that we don't get down. That is different. I'm talking about the disposition of our heart is contentment and joy that is in Christ. This is evidence of that. In joylessness, our life was simply no joy. That's evidence of a relationship that's distant from the Lord. But here's the good news. Before you think today, I guess I'm just going to be a joyless person. It doesn't have to be that way. Think of James 4, verses 4 through 8 specifically. Draw near to God. You probably know the verse. What does it say? He'll draw near to you. So let's try this again. Draw near to God, and what happens? He'll draw near to you. That's true for every one of us. Draw near to Him, and God will draw near to you. This is the second branch of those who truly know Christ. The second branch of fruit is that there will be joy. The third one is this, is that you're going to sacrificially love. Sacrificially love. Let's pick it up in verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another, here's the standard, as I, Jesus, have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends, I want to pause here. Do you think Jesus had any idea that his disciples would struggle with things like love or pride or bitterness or trying to be in the top position, jockeying for the top position among the disciples? Do you think they would struggle with anything like rivalries or infighting, not getting along with one another, Friends, that's why Jesus is telling them this. Now, thankfully, the church has matured in 2,000 years, and churches never struggle with those things anymore, so I'm going to skip this passage. Yeah, we still struggle with this. Why? Because we're still fallen. And, and we still struggle with the flesh. And Jesus wanted his followers to know something. He wanted them to see the example. Who's the example? It's not the other guys. It's him. It's Christ. He says, I want you to love each other, but not in a feelings, emotional, center type of way. How does he want us to love each other? Notice what it says in verse 12. Just as what? I have loved you. Now how has Christ loved us? You find the answer in verse 13. And so I want to just share this with you really quick. One commentator said, unity instead of rivalry. Trust instead of suspicion. Obedience instead of self-assertion. This is what must rule the disciples' hearts. And I think John captured this well by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Decades later, he would write these words down in 1 John 3, verse 16. Would you read this with me together, friends? By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Dr. Howard Hendricks was a famous seminary professor, went home to be with the Lord a few years ago, and Something I heard that he would always tell his seminary students that has stuck with me for a long time. He said this, two things will most influence where you'll be at 10 years out of seminary. Two things, the books you read and the friends you choose. And then he added this, choose them both very wisely. The books you read and the friends you choose. Now notice what Jesus does here to model what true biblical friendship is. Look at verse 13 again. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. I think you realize today, true biblical friendship is not defined by a friend request on a social media account or by a follower or someone unfollowing or unfriending you. That's not true biblical friendship. True biblical friendship is defined with sacrificial love and giving that expects nothing in return. Without any comparison, any comparison, Jesus Christ is the best friend you and I will ever have. He's the best friend we'll ever have. And here's what you see in the text. Follow with me as we look at this. The standard of love is who? Look at verse 12. It's Jesus the standard of sacrifice is who? Look at verse 13. It's Jesus. The standard of fruit bearing. Look at verses 15 and 16. That is Jesus. Look at verse 15 again. And Jesus says this, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you, beautiful word here, say it with me, friends, for all that I've heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, He may give it to you. The very next day, Jesus would demonstrate His love. He would live out verse 13. Remember, this is the night before He would die. And he would go to the cross, and he would die for our sins, and he would become the one final atoning sacrifice by shedding his blood so sinful, and you can say this, mortal enemies of God, which is what we once were, could be forgiven and redeemed and justified and accepted and adopted into God's family. And for Jesus, this was not theoretical. It wasn't abstract. It wasn't hypothetical. This was real. He lived this out in his life, By sacrificing his life for us. And so now you today, friend, who may be separated from God by your sin, whatever the sin may be, whatever the past may be, whatever the problem may be, listen, you can come to Christ today, and you can call out to him. And you can turn from your sin and call out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I trust in what Jesus did alone. And I'm going to trust him alone. And I trust him for my salvation. I don't trust this church. I don't trust a baptism. I don't trust my good works. I'm going to trust in the gospel, the good news of what Christ has done on my behalf. Here's a beautiful passage that illustrates this well. And I'd like us to read this together. Let this sink down into our hearts. Let's read this out loud. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Friends, the biblical understanding of friendship is so missed in our world today, but according to this passage and and numerous others, the biblical understanding of friendship is sacrificial giving, loving, Thinking of the other person as more important than yourself. And friends, this is why I believe even some professing Christians find themselves in this constant web of drama all the time is because they have these unrealistic expectations of friends. And so when they think they're not giving to me enough, they're not doing me, they miss this right here that it's not about giving to me, it's about sacrificially serving others. And understanding there will be some people in your life who are friends who may not give you much in return. And I would challenge you with this thought. That's kind of the way we are with the Lord. Think of what God has given to us. Will we ever give to God in an equal measure what God has given to us? And the answer to that, obviously, is what? It's no. And this is why there might be this constant revolving door of friendships in in someone's life. Because true Christ-like friendship considers this, how we can sacrificially give instead of get. How we can sacrificially love instead of always expecting others to love us. And then Jesus kind of puts it to where all pride is eradicated. There's nothing you can boast about with this here, friends. Look at verse 16. You can exegete this any way you want to, but it says what it says. He says, you did not choose me, but what? I chose you. To do what? This is what every follower of Christ should do. This is why I preach this way and this is why as a church we try to pay very careful attention to those who profess profess faith in Christ. If Christ has truly chosen you, then there will be fruit in your life. He's appointed us, he's commissioned us to bear fruit. There's only one reason here why These followers of Jesus were his friends. What's the one reason? He chose them. And instead of that promoting pride and arrogance, you know what it does? It humbles us. Right, friends? I have nothing to boast about. I have nothing to brag about. I'm not smarter than anybody. I'm just simply an object of God's love and grace and mercy that he's given to an undeserving sinner like me. And the means of fruitfulness comes from what? being connected to the vine. If you're not connected to the vine, there's not gonna be fruit that comes from the vine. And that fruitfulness you find in verse 17 comes from a relationship that you have with him in prayer. There's no power without prayer. There's no fruit without prayer. If you look at verse 17, let me show you one of the most important marching orders that Jesus gave to his disciples. These Things I command you so that what, friends, you would love one another. We talk a lot about disciple making. We should. It's what God gives to us, it's the mandate. But there's another aspect here, friends, that we can forget, and that's disciple loving. It's loving other followers of Jesus. I want to take you back to when I first walked in church as a young 17 year old teenage boy. And so I thought to myself, here I am in church. And this is great. These people aren't going to be anything like my friends in the public school. Nothing like them. They're all going to love each other. And they're going to be great. And they're all going to be accepting of one another. And you know what's great? I thought to myself as a brand new believer, these are Christians, and none of these Christians are going to be difficult to love. Now, how many of you have found out the hard way? That's really not true, right? You know why? Because I'm a difficult person to love. Great time for an amen, right, family? Yeah, I'm a difficult person to love. And if we're not followers of Christ who love one another, I just want to throw this out there. You're going to have a really difficult time giving credibility to your testimony. If we're really not loving one another, you're going to have a difficult time telling people, come follow my Savior as I follow him. Because unsaved people live that way. But we're different. We're different. We're raised to walk in newness of life. We can love by God's grace. Let's look at the fourth branch that grows out of the true vine, and that's this. You're going to be despised by the world. A fruitful Christian, more than likely, will be despised by the world. Pick it up in verse 18 if you would. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world... Let's stop here because Jesus points something out that that you really need to get as a Christian. That if you're truly living for him and you love him and you want to obey him and and you're lovingly obeying him and, and you want him to be exalted with your life, according to the Savior's words, if people hate you for that, understand this, it's not you they first hated. Who they first hated was Jesus Now, Jesus is essentially saying this. You know why some some family members may turn on you? Do you know why there's some coworkers who talk bad behind your back because of your testimony? Do you know why that your neighbors might call you names or especially those of you in school who take a strong stand for the Savior? You know why you might be ridiculed? Do you understand why some, according to to Jesus here, some of his original followers would lose their house, their lands, their jobs. Why would that happen? Why? What does it all come down to? It's this, you don't belong to them anymore. Friends, you don't belong to them anymore. You're different. Jesus not only tells his followers they'll be hated, he says, why? Why? Here's why they will be hated. Look at verse 19. They're not of this world. This refers to the system of this world, not mountains and oceans and hills and land. This is the system of this world controlled by Satan. And he says, this world of rebellion against God, you don't belong to that anymore. You're different. You're not of the world. And he says here, you don't belong. You have a different love now. Different affections, a different object of worship, different desires, different goals, different objectives you have in life now that is different than what it was before because you've been raised to walk in newness of life. No longer is the the goal of a family just to eat, drink, and be merry and to see them off and get a good job. That's not bad, but that's not it. That's not the ultimate goal. Now it's to love the Lord. Now it's to bring glory to Him. And friends, If that's the way we think, you simply will not fit into this world. You are going to be different. He also says this, it's because I chose you out of the world. Now get this, if the world hated Jesus and everything he stood for, you should expect the world to hate you as well. We should not be shocked. If the world hated the Savior, then we should expect, if we're following him faithfully, It's going to hate us as well. Listen to James Boyce as he wrote on this many years ago. Why does the world hate Christians? Have you ever thought about that? Why are Christians in North Korea so hated? Why? It hates them because it hates their master. Hatred does not exist because of what Christians are in and of themselves. Really, we're nothing. It doesn't exist because of what they have done, because they're harmless, or at least we should be. Hatred exists because the world hates Jesus and because Christians are identified with him by virtue of his call. So here's the point with all this. Let's not be surprised as a church if the world hates us for what we stand for. Let's not be surprised if there's some antagonism against us. Look, the more you're like the world, and I'm not preaching here some sort of isolationist, ultra-separatist type of philosophy here, so please don't misunderstand me. I'm talking about the way you live, the way you think, the goals you have in life. The more you're like the world, the more you're just going to fit in. There won't be anything that stands out. But the more you're different from the world, the more opposition you're going to face. Think of the words of Jesus. Luke 6, verse 46. Woe be unto you when all people speak well of you. Jesus did not die on a cross because he fit in really well. Jesus didn't die on a cross because he was popular. Jesus made definitive, objective, undeniable claims that only God himself could make. And what did that do to him? He was hated. He was despised. And he was rejected. Why do they hate Jesus? Look at verses 22 through 24. It's his words. You find here in verses 22 and 23. If I had not spoken to them, what did Jesus speak about? He spoke to people's self-righteousness. He spoke to their sin issues. Most don't like to hear about their sin. We like to hear, hey, you're doing great. You're doing fine. Now, Jesus was never unkind. He was never dishonest. Jesus was gracious, but he was also bold. He was bold when he needed to be. He was gentle, but he was always truthful. But here's what Jesus' words did. They revealed the character of what was inside people's hearts. And they also his works. And Jesus raised the dead. He did miracles. He forgave people of their sins. He did the works of God. What did the works of God reveal? It revealed their hearts. He said, look, if you can deny what I did, if you can deny these works, then great, but you can't. And it's those works that they hated. And just like the words of God and the works of God reveal our sinfulness, they reveal our utter need of grace. One theologian put it this way. In the final analysis, here's what it is. The hatred of the world for Jesus' followers may be reduced to this. The world hates Christ's followers because it hates Christ. And the world hates Christ because it hates the Father. So that means this. Friends, you are called a world to love those in the world where there's a very good chance where they may hate you in return. We are called to love a world that may hate us in return. That might be family, could be good friends, could be those at work, could be your neighbors. Now, I hope that doesn't happen. It'd be great if it doesn't. It'd be great if if you had a great relationship. But understand this, friends. If we're truly in Christ, if Christ is truly inside of us, then fruit is going to be growing on the outside. We're going to be joyfully obedient. We're going to sacrificially love. We're going to be people who are despised by the world, and we're going to be joyful. There's going to be a real, true joy in our lives. I'd ask you today... I was going to do an illustration from years ago. It probably wouldn't have been the best where you're kind of like those guys in the old Fruit of the Loom commercials where you walk around in these big fruit outfits, you know. But really, that's what you are. You're walking around. You're growing some sort of fruit in your life. Now, let's take a time out and examine what is that fruit. What's that fruit that is growing in our lives? Let's pray and ask God to Work in our hearts and change our hearts with this. Our precious Father, we ask you to help us in our lives to demonstrate and show the fruit that a true follower of Christ should be showing. Father, may we be known by that fruit and and Father, may that continually grow. May it be evident and obvious that we're connected to the true vine. We love you, Father. We praise you. Thank you for what you've done in our lives. May that continue to grow. And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said together, amen. Amen.